Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. It says, And it came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. I heard the story one time of a preacher who was preaching a message from the book of Revelation on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he was extremely pumped up and excited about his message. And as he came into the pulpit, all he could remember were the first words of his message. And he thought, well, here goes nothing. And he began by saying, behold, I come quickly. And then his mind went blank. And he had completely forgotten what he was going to say next. And so he thought to himself after a short pause, well, I'll just start over and hope that it comes in. And so he said, behold, I come quickly. But there was nothing. And so he took a few steps back and he shouted it louder. He said, behold, I come quickly. But still there was nothing. And so he charged the pulpit in one last desperate effort. And as he came, he said, I come quickly. And the pulpit and him just toppled right off the platform and he rolled right into the front row. And as he got up embarrassed and he brushed himself off, he said to the man that he collided with, he said, I'm so, so sorry that that happened. And the guy looked at him and he said, it's not your fault. You warned me three times. <laughs> but Jesus did say that he was coming quickly. And he's told us that throughout the Bible. We know as Christians that Jesus is coming. And yet I'm amazed that for many of us, when he comes, it will come as somewhat of a surprise. That it will be something that we are not maybe expecting. But he told us that we should live in expectation of his coming and that he would come quickly. Well, what we have in the text that's before us is a period of time that the Bible calls the days of Noah. It's been about 1,600 years at this point since the creation of Adam. And there's been about 10 to 12 generations of people that have been born upon the earth. Many have been born. Very few have died as the average age is somewhere around, say, 900 years. And because of the effect of the curse, evil has pervaded the world in an amazing way when we come into the text that we're in right now. And the reason why this text of Scripture is so incredibly amazing to us and such an, a fascination to us, is not only because of its interest and the things in it that are so amazingly interesting just in the historical fashion of them, but also because this passage of Scripture is for us in these days a lighthouse concerning the time of Jesus' return. Twice in the New Testament it's recorded that Jesus said concerning his return that as it was in the days of Noah, so also shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. He pointed that out very clearly, very distinctly, that there would be similarities in the world 
between what was going on in Noah's day and what will be going on in the world in the day that Jesus came. And so therefore, it becomes of great interest to us to know exactly what was going on in the days of Noah that we might know what we're looking for and watching for. Now, we're going to spend two weeks in chapter 6. In tonight's study, we'll look at the first 13 verses, and we'll look at what's coming or what caused the flood. And next week, we'll see what did Noah do about it. It won't be next week. I guess it will be two weeks because of Thanksgiving. But our next study will be What did Noah do about it, and what are we to do about the days that we're living in? And so Genesis chapter 6 gives to us the description of what it was like in the days of Noah. It tells us, first of all, right off the bat, in verse 1, one of the marks of Noah's day is that it came to pass that men began to multiply upon the face of the earth. Now, when it talks about men, it's not talking about males, but it's talking about humankind. Now, in the last chapter, we saw the genealogy that went from Adam all the way down to Noah. And after each of the names that were listed there, it tells us the name of their son, maybe their firstborn, but then it ends each segment by saying, and they begat sons and daughters. So if people are living in the world at this time for a lifespan of about 900 years, and they're bearing children and very few people are dying then the population of the world is multiplying very rapidly. Slow at first, but then exponentially growing over time. And so if you can just imagine that Adam and Eve, the first two people, let's say in their 900 years, they have 15 children. And that's probably conservative, considering the amount of time that they were alive. But then say those 15 pair up, and they have 15 children each couple. That's the second generation. And then they pair up, and they all have 15. And then they pair up, and then they all have 15. And they pair up, and they have 15. And you bring it down 11 generations from Adam and Eve, then the estimated population is about 8 billion people on the planet after 11 generations because of exponential growing factor. That's if you figure that every couple has 15 children over the course of a 900-year lifespan. Now, if you carry it out 12 generations, just one generation further from the 11th, the population of the world goes from 8 billion to 63 billion in one generation. That's how exponential growth works, because there's that many more couples giving birth. Well, it was in the days when men now begin to multiply. And so you get the idea that the population of the world is expanding very fast at this time. Now, one of the things that's absolutely amazing to me is that from the time of the flood, when Noah and the other seven people that were with him on the boat, when they came off the ark and they began to repopulate the world, it took from the flood until the year 1804 AD for the world to reach a population of one billion. Of course, people living much shorter lifespans after the flood And, you know, took a lot more time to get up to that number, but until 1804 A.D. to reach 1 billion people. But then it only took until 1927 for the world to reach 2 billion in its population. It only then took until 1960, a span of 33 years, 
for the world to reach a population of 3 billion. From there, it only took 14 years to 1974 to reach a population of 4 billion. And then from there, 13 years to 1987 to reach 5 billion people. And then from there, 12 years till 1999 to reach 6 billion. And then from there until 2011, 2011, to reach 7 billion. And estimates are that by the year 2020, the population of the world will reach 9 billion people. And so you can see how exponential growth expands the population quite rapidly. And it was in Noah's day that the population began, it says, to multiply. And that set the stage for what was to come. Now, why is that significant in terms of the context of what's about to take place, the coming judgment and the flood? Because when you have a multiplicity of sinful people, you have the rapid propagation and advancement of evil and sin in the world, which hastens then the judgment of God. And so the first mark of, jo of Noah's day, the setting in the scene, is that Noah, in his day, there was a population expansion upon the world in an exponential way. Well, it tells us then the second thing that is brought to our attention concerning the days of Noah in verse 2. It says, in those days that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And then down in verse 4, it tells us, and this is the part that intrigues us concerning this mention. It says that there were giants in the earth in those days that were the result of the sons of God coming into the daughters of men when they bore children unto them, which became mighty men which were of old, that were men of renown. And so the sons of God, intermingling with the daughters of men, producing giants, mighty men, men of renown, which were of old. Now, naturally, there's a debate in this scripture concerning what exactly does this mean that the sons of God came in to the daughters of men. On the one hand, there's one camp that believes that what he's simply saying is that the godly descendants of Seth that we read about in chapter 5 began intermingling with the ungodly line of Cain that we read about at the end of chapter 4, and that there was an intermingling of these two different types of people, the saved and the unsaved, and that that's all this is talking about, is that there was a compromise of the people of God with the people that were not of God and the whole thing. Now, the other side of the debate is that the sons of God is not speaking about human beings at all, but rather the fallen angels that were kicked out of heaven, that they mated with human women, and that they produced something that was superhuman in their offspring. That these were half men, half angels, something that was uh, supernatural in its thing. Now, there's problem on the first side of the argument that it was just the godly line of Seth and the godly, ungodly line of Cain that were intermingling. The biggest and first problem, most obviously, is when does the union of a saved person and an unsaved person produce a giant? I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, that would be quite telling, wouldn't it? A married couple, they come to the altar, they, the, each the other think that the other is saved, and then they have their first child. It's like, you lied to me. <laughs> We've never seen that. There's nothing to back that up. 
The other reason, the other problem I see with that is that we're going to learn in this passage that when God looked at humanity in these days, he says that all flesh had corrupted themselves and that even the so-called godly descendants of Seth by this time had become apostate and had turned away from God completely. So at this time, there is no godly line of Seth. There's only eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives that ultimately will be saved, that will find grace in this whole thing. So there isn't a righteous line. So most likely, this isn't talking about a godly line of people intermingling with an ungodly line of people. Now, the problem on the other side, the other argument that, well, these are fallen angels that have mated with human women is that Jesus says in the New Testament that angels are not married, nor are they given in marriage. Well, here's the answer that those that argue this side of it will say. They'll say, no, Jesus was talking about unfallen angels in heaven, and that unfallen angels in heaven are not married, and they are not given in marriage. But that doesn't mean that they cannot, or that it's impossible that what's being suggested in the text took place just tells us that in heaven, angels are not married, nor are they given in marriage. It seems that the overwhelming evidence of what's being spoken of here speaks to the latter theory, that these are the fallen angels that have mated with human women, and the byproduct of what it produced in the earth were half men, half spirit. Now, what's the evidence that speaks to that point? First of all, their very name. It says that the sons of God came in to the daughters of men. The Hebrew word for sons of God is benai Elohim, the sons of God. It's only used three other times in the Old Testament, and in each case, it speaks of angels, angelic beings, and not human beings. So that would make this the exception if this is talking about human beings. Now, when it calls them the sons of God, they are not begotten sons of God. They're not like Jesus was on the same level as him. He's the only begotten son of God. But these are the sons of God in the context that they were created by God. They're sons by creation, not by begetting, but angelic beings nevertheless. The other thing that points to the fact that this is fallen angels intermingling with humanity is that when it says that giants were in the earth in those days that were the byproduct of these unions, The Hebrew word for giants is the Hebrew word Nephilim. Perhaps you've heard that word before, the Nephilim, as we say it in English, you know. But the Nephilim, it comes from the Hebrew word Neph, which means fall. So Nephal is to fall, and Im is plural. And what it literally means is from the fallen ones. So these giants that were in the earth, their very name in the Hebrew text is that they're from the fallen ones. Another point of evidence is that every extra-biblical writing that exists in the world supports that these were fallen angels that intermingled with the children of men. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, these are actually called fallen angels. The fallen angels of God mated with the daughters of men. Josephus, the historian, speaks of them this way. The book of Enoch, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the apocryphal writings, the Midrash, which is a Hebrew commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, all of the extra-biblical sources support the view or the theory or the, the, uh, the fact that these are fallen angels that have intermingled with the daughters of men to produce it. 
So the question is, who then were the Nephilim or the Nephilim? What are the Nephilim? They are half man, half spirit, superhumans. Mighty men of renown. They were advanced mentally, physically, in every way, and even in size. And it's where the Greeks and the Romans got the idea for the Titans in their you know, fantastical um, things, is, is from this whole thing. In fact, the, in the Septuagint, when it says giants, it uses the word gigantes, which means the Titans. That's how it's translated. It's where that whole idea came from. Well, what did the Nephilim do? What was their influence or their work within the world? What they did is that they brought the rapid and rampant advancement of evil. The extra-biblical writings suggest that it's them that introduced the psychic arts to mankind. White magic and sorcery, alchemy and drug-making and drug use. That they introduced the secret orders and even the practical things whereby man oppresses man and learning how to twist and make crooked an economy and some of the banking methods that are used even to this day, that they were taught to men by this race of half-men, half-angels. And what they did in their introduction of evil into the world is that they rapidly primed the world for the coming flood judgment of God. Now, the question I know that you have that you're not asking right now is, are there Nephilim in the world today? Does this happen in today's world right now? And the answer to that question is absolutely no. And here's how we know it. Because in the New Testament book of Jude in verse 6 and also in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, Jude tells us and Peter tells us that the angels that sinned that kept not their first estate, these fallen angels that produced the Nephilim, that they have been locked and reserved in chains under darkness to be reserved for the judgment of the great day. It's Jude 6, 2 Peter, <laughs> chapter 2, <laughs> verse 4, should come up. But you can write it down. You know, you can look it up. You're, you're way too dependent on the screen, you know, for these things to come up, you know. <laughs> But Jude and Peter, they tell us that these demons or these fallen angels have been chained up and they'll be chained there and that they no longer have access to the planet to do the things that they have done. Now, I don't know if this is true and you don't have to don't say Pastor Nick said, I'm telling you something that I heard that makes sense to me and is plausible, but this is not doctrine. And that is that the difference between a fallen angel and a demon is that a fallen angel is these spirits that are being spoken of here, they're spoken of in Peter, they're spoken of in Revelation when it talks about one-third of the angels that fell with Satan when he rebelled. Those are fallen angels. But that when they produced these Nephilim, these half-man, half-spirits, when those giants, those half-men died, the spirit that animated that body was still present in the world. The spirit can't be erased. It cannot die. And that that's what became demons or demon spirits, like what we read about in the New Testament, where demons possessed someone or inhabited someone. I don't know if that's actually true, but there's something to think about and some plausibility in the whole thing. But there are not Nephilim in the world today, and nor are these fallen angels having access to the world in the way that they did in the days of Noah before the flood. However, 
The Bible does seem to um, insinuate that prior to the, the, the return of Christ during the tribulation, that those angels will be released and something like this will happen again in the world. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 43, the prophet Daniel, when he saw the vision of the statue with the head of gold and the chest of silver and the belly of bronze and the legs of brass and the feet of you know, iron mixed with clay and the ten toes, that, that whole vision, when Daniel was giving the interpretation of what those nations were that were represented by those metals, he talks about the ten toes, which is the revived Roman Empire that will be the last day's government underneath the Antichrist's order and rule. And what Daniel says concerning the last day's empire and those ten tolls, he says that whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, it's Daniel chapter 2, verse 43, that whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And it very well could be an allusion to the fact that in that time of judgment, that final seven-year period, that this may happen again as God allows these fallen angels access to the earth again to bring forth the rampant evil that existed in the days of Noah. Now the final question before we move on from the Nephilim, this interesting thing. Why does the Bible say so very little about something that's so incredibly interesting, right? Like, why isn't there more? I mean, God, explain this a little bit. Would you give some clarity? You give us just enough to whet our appetite and not enough for us to completely understand what's going on here. Why, God? Why don't you spell it out for us clearly? Here's why. Because in Romans chapter 16, verse 19 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says to the church, to us, that he would have us to be wise concerning what is good and to be simple concerning what is evil. The word simple means stupid. That's a, just a polite King James way. It means be stupid. That when it comes to some of these things that pertain to the kingdom of darkness and how the kingdom of darkness operates and propagates and influences a fallen world, that we're to remain simple or stupid or innocent. We are called not to be expert on the realm of Satan's empire and how he operates. But rather, we're called to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ and we're to always keep him between us and the devil in the kingdom of darkness. About 15 years ago, when I heard these things for the very first time as a young man, I was extremely interested in them. And I wanted to understand, I wanted to know it. And so I began to dig, and I met a Christian who was an expert on Freemasonry and secret societies and, you know, a lot of the, the underlying currents of the evil that makes the world what it is. And he gave me a manual of Freemasonry, which you cannot get. You can't go to a bookstore or get one of those online. You know, they're very secretive in the whole thing. And it talks about some of the rights in there that if you share the secrets, they'll cut your tongue out. And, I mean, it's pretty graphic in its description. And then some of the supporting documents that some of the secret orders and some of the demonic influences had say in the architecture of our country and all this stuff. And I just did all this research. And I remember one night I printed up all these pictures and graphics and graphs and charts and the whole thing. And something absolutely amazing happened on that night. When I printed all that up and I showed it to my wife and we went through it and we were like, whoa, this blows your mind. You know, this is insane. 
is that the peace of God departed from my house that night. Now, I didn't know that the peace of God was over my house, but I did know that it was there once it was gone. There was an unsettledness, and both me and my wife felt it. There was an absence of some light, and we could just feel uneasy about things. And we, you know, we kind of ignored it, and we put things away, and we went to bed that night, but neither one of us could sleep. We were just tossing and turning, and there was, just, there was no reason, but we were just unsettled. The peace was gone. And at the time, we only had one child, our daughter, who turned 16 today. She was one. And she began to cry in the middle of the night and just shriek out and scream in the middle of the night. And both of us were there. And my wife just said, in the middle of darkness, hearing the screaming, she said, you want to get rid of those papers now? And I said, yep. And I got up and I went outside in the middle of the night and I just burned everything. And it was amazing, the peace of God that just settled again right over our house. You know, and everything just went back to calm. And the Lord spoke very clearly. He said, be wise concerning what is good and be simple or stupid concerning evil. Now, that didn't stop me from being intrigued by the interesting things that are, are here and that are revealed. But the Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things which are revealed are for us and for our children forever. And so God has given us enough that we might understand and the rest he has kept to himself and we're to keep our eyes on him, and he'll make all things known in his time and according to his way. But there was a very supernatural demonic force that was present in the world in the days of Noah that had a strong influence over the people of the world and that was causing evil to propagate rather rapidly. Well, we move from the setting of the days of Noah and the source that brought the evil into the world to what exactly the sin was that motivated God to bring the flood and the judgment that came with it? What was the sin of Noah's day? What was going on in the world, the influence of these demonic forces? Well, the first thing that we see is that there was a total disregard of God's will and God's intent towards marriage and sex. God's will concerning man and marriage is that it be one man and one woman for life. For this cause, God said, a man shall leave his father and mother. He will be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. That was God's will. That's what he revealed. Now, we learn that through the descendants of Cain, polygamy became a common practice within a fallen world. And by the time we come to Noah's day, this polygamy had run amok. It says that the sons of God took them wives of all which they chose. No regard at all for the ways and the will of God as it concerns marriage. Now, I don't need to tell you that in today's world and in modern society right now today, we live in days where there is no boundaries concerning people's respect for God's will and God's commands concerning marriage and boundaries. Five days ago, I read an article. I think it originated with ABC that a woman who married her mother pleaded guilty of incest. I read about a British woman named Cindy who recently married her pet dolphin. <laughs> Amen. I read about a German man, and they actually had photos of him, who married his cat. I read of a Chinese man named Liu Yi who married himself, and there was a picture of him with a cardboard life-size image of himself, and they were both wearing tuxedos, and they had a ceremony. I read about a Japanese man who married a Nintendo DS character... And I read about an American man named Dave Cat who married a blow-up doll 
And on his wedding day, when asked about it, he said, she provides me with a lot of things an organic partner cannot, like quiet. <laughs> He's got us there. <laughs> I know that's a, you know, somewhat amusing and grieving and confusing and twisted at the same time, but it's where we are. And the problem with moral relativism is that once you say that something is okay, where now do you draw the line to tell someone that something's not okay? That if it's okay for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman or for a man to marry five women or a woman to marry five men, what now gives you the right to draw the line somewhere further down and say that men cannot marry an animal? You can't do that. And so when the proponents of strange marriage relationships are brought and confronted with that point, their answer to it is, everyone should be allowed to do whatever they want, marry who they want, when they want, no matter what. That's their answer. Because now you cannot draw a line anywhere. God draws a line and he said, this is what it is. I made it. It's what it's created to be. And I don't change. He doesn't change his mind. But man, in a fallen condition that has no regard to the will of God, will cross every boundary and make things whatever he wants them to be. And that was a mark of things in Noah's day. The second mark of the wickedness of Noah's time is given to us in verse, time, verse 5, where it tells us there in chapter 6, verse 5, it says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The word wicked in the Hebrew language is very, translated very simply evil or bad. And it tells us that it was great in the earth. That is, that it was abounding or increasing very rapidly. Now, for those of you that in here are over 50 years of age, isn't it amazing to you to consider the great moral slide that has taken place in our country in the past 50 years? It's amazing, isn't it? I'm not quite yet 50, and I've seen it happen in my own life. In the year 1940, when the feature film Gone with the Wind first came into theaters. It closed with the line where the man said to the woman, frankly, dear, I don't give a, and then he used the D word there on TV. And it was a huge scandal that they had broken the barrier of actually using a curse word in a feature film. And people wrote articles about it, and they complained, and it was all over the newspapers and editorials, and it was a big deal because we'd crossed a line, and where do we draw the line now that we've done that? It was only a couple of decades later, the feature primetime television show, Three's Company, aired. Aired for many years, about two women and one man all living together. And there was innuendos and insinuations, and again, everybody looked on and said, man, they're pushing the envelope again in what they're feeding our kids and allowing them to see in the influence that's coming into their lives. Then came the 80s and the inception of MTV, music television and the music videos, and the things that were put on the screen and set to tones and that were seen by the kids and taken in. And then the 80s unfolded into the 90s in programs like Beverly Hills, 90210, and Melrose Place that pushed the envelope just a little bit further and scandalous teenage relationships and issues and sexually transmitted diseases and, and, and things that are real and current. You know. And that folded then into the new millennium. And it pushed a little bit further where programs like Wife Swap and Desperate Housewives and Sex in the City and, you know, what, what was that one? The Jersey Shore came on. And it's amazing what has happened in our country just in the past 
decades and the moral slide that has happened, the advancement of evil and the advancement of wickedness in the world, and we're seeing it in an amazing way. This morning when my daughter came downstairs, it's her 16th birthday, as I shared with you, and as she walked into the room, I quickly put on the iPad the song 16 Candles. You know the oldie? And I haven't heard that song in many years, but everybody kind of knows it. You know, it's one of those famous hit songs from the last generation, two generations ago. And as I played it, I, I was smirking because I thought to myself, if this song was written today, then the author of this song would be investigated by CPS. <laughs> you can't write these things about a 16-year-old. This is wrong, you know. But it speaks to the slide. It speaks to where we are. It's an amazing thing. Jesus said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It only takes a little bit of sin, and once it's introduced into a system, it spreads like yeast in a batch of dough. It will permeate throughout. The Apostle Paul called it the mystery of iniquity in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said it's already at work in the world. And it just rots, and it rots, and it rots, and it rots, and it rots. And it had come to a head in the days of Noah, and it will come to a head in the days when Jesus will return to the earth. The third thing it says about the days of Noah, it's also in verse 5, it says that every imagination of the thoughts of men's hearts was only evil continually. To paraphrase that or say it another way, you could say that the purposes and desires were singularly evil all the time. It's amazing to me that God can see beyond the boundaries of actions and into the mind and the things that it's thinking. And even further than that, that God sees thoughts as actions. In Ezekiel chapter 8, there's a passage in a scene where God takes Ezekiel in a vision while he's dreaming or having a vision of the daytime. And he takes him into the temple. And in the temple, Ezekiel sees a hole in the wall. And God says, I want you to dig out that hole a little bit. And as he digs it out, he sees the priests inside and all the holy men, the men that were servants of the temple, were standing there and they were staring at a wall. And God said, now get on the inside and see what they're staring at and look. And Ezekiel said, when I got inside, I saw all manner of pornographic abominations of things that were forbidden by God. And when he came outside appalled and aghast, he said, God, what in the world was that? And God's reply to Ezekiel, and you could read it, Ezekiel chapter 8. He said, Ezekiel... What you saw in there is what's going on in the chambers of imagery, the imagination of my priests and my prophets. That even to those that are called to be consecrated and holy, the imagination is wickedness. God sees the things that we imagine, the things that we think about. And he could see that the condition of men in Noah's day is that the thoughts, intents, purposes, desires, and imaginations were only evil, and it was a continual evil. One of the biggest money-generating industries in the United States of America and probably in the world today is the pornographic industry. Adult entertainment news published some statistics that in the United States alone, 11,000 full-length feature film pornographic movies are produced every year. 11,000 films every year. It's a $10 billion a year agency 
that brings in more money than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. They were also able to gather that more than 30% of all online video rentals and all hotel room video rentals that are rented in rooms are sex films that are downloaded and rented. A couple of years ago, there was a Surgeon General under the Reagan administration named Everett C. Koop, and he sought reform and regulation on this, seeing the problem of it. And his conclusion of the problem, and this is back in the 80s, he said that if nothing is done, it'll just get worse, for the appetite for pornography seems to be insatiable. What an amazing thing for someone to observe. And now for us, 35, 40 years later from when those words were spoken, to see the damage that it has done in a society and see the perversion and the pervasion that it is. Pornography is the indulging of the imagination to bring pleasure to the flesh. And when a person indulges in that, whether a male or a female, it becomes an addiction in their life. And every addiction is first binding and then progressive and ultimately destructive. There's no exception to the rule. And a person that involves themselves in that kind of a thing becomes addicted, but that addiction needs to be fed, and thus it becomes progressive. And a person who, in the chambers of their imagination, is indulging in things like that, it's only a matter of time before action evolves into either, or I'm sorry, imagination evolves into either greater or more stimulating imagination or action in carrying out the things that they're seeing and thinking in reality. And thus we turn on the TV and the news. And we find out about this guy Weinstein. And now the floodgate of accusations that are being poured out all over the place in every industry, in every corner of society. Why? Because the imagination of men's hearts is only evil continually and they're gripped by something more powerful than they are that brings them to do things that are an abomination to the Lord. And it hastened his judgment in Noah's day. It tells us fourthly concerning the situation in the world in the days of Noah and it's in verses 11 and 12. It says that the earth was corrupt and that all flesh had corrupted his way. It says that, read verse 11. It says that the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way, that is God's way, upon the earth. Three times in two verses, God mentions corruption. The word corrupt means to compromise, to spoil, to ruin, to destroy. It means that everything that God had made in the days of Noah was now hijacked by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what corruption is. It's taking the ways of God and the things of God and then exploiting and changing them in some way to make them something other than what God intended them to be. And thus they become hijacked for the desires and intents of men. And it's destructive. And so it was in Noah's day, and so it is that we look around in the world that we live in today, and what do we see? We see that there is corruption that has touched every corner of the world that we live in. I mean, just think about it. You name one sector or segment of humanity or mankind's life and well-being that has not been corrupted in some way. You think about government. Is there corruption in government, human government? 
Think about the morals of God. We don't even need to go there. That was gone a long time ago. Think about economy and money. For those of you that are in the know, you understand. There's so much corruption, it's insane. It goes without words. All the way down to the food that we eat. If you look at things like Monsanto and genetically engineered, it's, that's what that is. It's compromise. And the very things that God created to keep us alive, they've been exploited and corrupted by men for the sake of making more money. So that now people can't eat things that God made because if they eat them, their bodies attack themselves. Corruption of men for the sake of making money. The healthcare industry. It doesn't matter what it is. You name something. And for every one of us here that's going through anything in life right now that has any involvement at all with something out in the world, you know that that thing has been corrupted in some way. We live in a corrupt world. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the coming, the days of the coming of the Son of Man. What's amazing to me as I consider the corruption of the world is that Jesus said that there is not one thing that has been kept secret that will not be made known openly. One day, every bit of corruption will be exposed, will be put away, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and it will be right. The fifth sign, and there's only five, concerning the days of Noah, and it's not here in the text in Genesis, but Jesus actually said it in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 and 38. And Jesus said this, he said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And here it is. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. What's the fifth sign of the days of Noah? Is that it was life as usual for everybody on the planet. That all these things had become so common that no one even recognized that it was a problem. And no one was expecting anything to come of it or for God to intervene. It's kind of like that story of the frog in the boiling water. You know how he's put in the water when it's cold, and then it's slowly heated by degrees, and he never jumps out because the temperature change is so slight and imperceptible that by the time it's too late, he can't get out, and he boils himself to death. And that's kind of the idea is that life was so common that the people were like, hey, tomorrow we're going to get up, we're going to eat our food, we're going to go about our day, we're going to plan the marriage for next week, next month. And things are going to always be like this and they'll go on forever. And they had no idea that they were living in the days on the cusp of God's judgment. It was life as usual. They had become desensitized to the very condition that they were in. Amazing. There will be a falling away in the last days, the Bible says. And there will be apostasy. But the Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And though the conditions in the world get as bad as they will get and are getting, it will never be, as long as you and I are here, as bad as it was in the days of Noah. Because the Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Meaning that as long as there are spirit-filled believers in Jesus Christ in the world, it cannot get as bad as it was in those days. But God has an answer to that. It's called the rapture. And there's a day coming when God's going to remove his people from the world. And at that time, all the barriers of evil will be lifted away. Every restraint of evil will be lifted away. And the world will rapidly become as bad and worse than it was in the days of Noah. 
And it will bring a judgment of God that will be greater than the judgment of the flood that was coming in the days of Noah. And believe me, it won't be life as usual after the rapture. But it will be all the way up until that time. What's God's response by way of winding down our study now for tonight? What was God's response to all of this? First of all, it says in verses 6 and 7 that it grieved him at his heart to the point of regret that he had even made man on the earth. Notice what it says in verse 6. It says that it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man, beast, and creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now what amazes me about this is that it says that God was grieved, not that God was angered. And why is that so telling? Because grief is the byproduct of frustrated love. When you're grieved with something, it's because there's a love and that love has been violated. And the replacement emotion of that is that there's grief. And a person can only love to the level that they're willing to be hurt. Love, to be love, has to make itself vulnerable in some way. And so the fact that God is grieving over the fallenness of men is a testament to his love for man. He always wanted what was best for man, always wants what's best for man. And when he sees man corrupted in the way that he is, it causes grief in the heart of God. And the level of grief in God's heart has now matched the level of his love to a point where God says, it's almost not worth it that I made man in the first place. Now, can I ask you, mom and dad, can you relate to this feeling at all? Have you looked at your children and seen the way that they've gone, the way that they've chosen to go? And in your heart, there's a grief over the decisions that they've made and the resulting consequences of those decisions as you look at their lives. And there's something inside that says, is it even worth it? That's what God was feeling at this time when he looked at the creation that he had made. He looked at the people that he intended so much good for. He saw the decisions that they made and it grieved him at his heart. And he, even to the point where he said, it's almost not worth it to have created them in the first place. If that's you here tonight and you're just a parent and that's something that's going on in your emotions because of something that you see in your kids, understand that you're not alone in that. God knows exactly what it's like to feel in that position because he feels in that position. He lives in that position. And you have an opportunity in that position to fellowship with God in a way that is supernatural. The fellowship of suffering, it's called. It's amazing to me that God's heart, even in the Old Testament, is that he wants the best for his people. The second response of God to all this is that he declared and determined that there will be an end. In verses 3 and then again in verse 13, in verse 3, God says that the days of man will be 120 years. God sets a time limit on how long he's going to forbear. And then in verse 13, the close of the passage, he says to Noah, it says that God said to Noah that the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That is that after a definitive age of grace, 120 years that God gave, he says that he himself will judge. And understand that there will come a time and there will come a day when God will endure and be patient with evil no longer, and he will judge the world. It was interesting this week, I was reading in my devotions in the book of Judges, the passage concerning Jephthah. And when Jephthah was confronted by the enemies of God, the Ammonites, 
And they accused him and he accused them. Jephthah looked at them and he said these words. He said, let God the judge, the judge of all the earth, judge between us. It's a name of God. You know how we say, you know, Jehovah Elohim, the Lord Almighty, or Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider? That's a name of God that's given of him there in Judges, chapter 11. He's called Jehovah Shavat, which is the Lord, the judge. And he is the God who judges, and he will judge the world. Jehovah Shaphat, it's S-H-A-P-H-A-T. He's the one that brings judgment. He has determined and he has declared, and there will be an end. The third response of, of God in verses 8 and 9 is that Noah found grace because he was just, perfect, and he walked with God. Notice in verse 8, and we close. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and these are the generations of Noah, for Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. The Bible tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the middle of all this chaos that was going on in the world in Noah's day, there was a man who knew his own weakness, his own frailty. And it tells us that he found grace from God. Now, what's grace? Grace is undeserved justification that is gifted by God apart from our deserving it. God was gracious to Noah. The New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7, it says that Noah, that by faith being moved by fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his family. That there was a fearfulness in Noah in seeing the things that were going on in the world and it drove him to seek after God. And in seeking after God, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfect in the context of never having sinned, but he understood that there was a God and he wanted to know him and walk with him and he wanted to be right with him. And the result was that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The result of that grace is that Noah was justified. That's what it says in, in the text here in Genesis. It says that he was a just man, meaning that God declared Noah to be righteous because of the grace that was extended because of the fear that drove him to faith. So grace led for him to be justified, which then led to what God calls here that he was perfect in his generations. Now, what does it mean that Noah was perfect? The word perfect means sincere or integral. And the idea behind it is that what you saw on the outside of Noah was the same as what was going on on the inside of Noah. He wasn't two different people. He wasn't a religious person when he was around his family. They were the only church that he had. Otherwise, I'd say church, you know. He wasn't religious around his family, but then something totally different in secret where no one else knew what was going on. No, but when God looked at him and he said, because this man fears me, because my grace and my presence is real in his life, I've been able to do something in him where no, he's not perfect and sinless, but he's the same person that everybody sees on the outside that I see on the inside. And that's always a work of grace in the heart of a person who comes to God by faith is that he works in them a sincerity and a reality. No, I'm not perfect. No, I still sin. I still struggle. I still fall. I'm not what I want to be, and I'm hopefully not what I'm going to be. But I'm also not what I used to be. But God, make me sincere at least that I don't pretend to be something that I know that I'm absolutely not, and thus I'm a hypocrite. He wasn't a hypocrite. He was sincere. He was perfect in his generations. And why? Because he walked with God. Fourthly, it says concerning him. 
One of only two people prior to the flood that it says walked with God, Enoch and Noah. He wanted a relationship with God. That's what drove him. That's what drove Noah. And so as we close and conclude, and oh my goodness, it's late, I'm so sorry. We conclude that we are living in days very much like those of the days of Noah. We conclude that God is going to intervene and that he is going to bring judgment upon the world. And we conclude that God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. That even as God is going to make provision for Noah to not come under his wrath because he is justified, so also in the days in which we live, God will make provision for his people to escape the judgment that is coming upon the world. It's clear in scripture, Genesis chapter 18, the snatching of Lot out of Sodom. Paul's word to the church in Thessalonica when he said that we are not appointed unto wrath. We say, how is God going to spare the righteous in the days in which we live, in which God is going to judge the world? The answer is through the rapture, when God takes his people up to heaven with him. And so we're living in the days of Noah, and we know that God is going to judge. The worship team can come as we close tonight. Next week, we're going to, or two weeks from now, we're going to finish the chapter, and we're going to look at what Noah did, and it's a very important study. And here's why. Because the Bible tells us that Noah's faith was motivated by fear. Not a fear in an unhealthy way, but he had a fearfulness of God and a a respect and awe of him. And he knew that God was going to intervene and move in the world. And that fear motivated him to faith, and then that faith motivated him to action, and he did something about it in the day in which he lived. And so God, in the days in which we live, hopefully he stirred up fear in a healthy way, unto faith, we're walking with him, so now what do we do? And as we close the service tonight, and we pray, and and, and the worship team is going to lead us in a song as we close... I call us as a church to account tonight. Are we like Noah? If the eyes of the Lord run to and fro over the room that we're in right now, what does he see? Life as usual. God's never going to come. He doesn't care. He doesn't see the things that I do. It is what it is, Kesara, whatever will be, will be. Or does he see in us an awakening? an awareness of what's going on around us to where we can look at the world where we can look at ourselves where we can look at our family and say he's coming his coming is near even at the door am I ready for it Lord is my life on the inside the same thing that it is on the outside Lord when you come are you going to account me worthy to escape all these things and to stand before the son of man or am I just religious am I phony am I just playing church Or have I allowed the world to creep in and corrupt me in such a way that I'm not where I'm supposed to be and not what I should be? Jesus said emphatically, he said, don't let that day come upon you unawares. It will be as it was in the days of Noah. And probably the second shortest verse, second shortest sentence that Jesus spoke, he said, remember Lot's wife. She was so infused with the world That when judgment was even falling, she couldn't be separated from it and she was carried away in the judgment of it. I pray that that doesn't happen to anyone here. I pray that our hearts are moved with an understanding of the severity of the times in which we live. And that we can be honest before God and open up our hearts and say, God, please search me. 
Know me. Try my heart. Steer me in the right way. Empty out of me everything that's not supposed to be in me. And if you don't know the Lord here tonight, I want you to understand that we are living in the time of the most amazing grace that history will ever know. That God placed your sin upon his son and invites you to come to him in repentance and faith and to be completely justified and forgiven of every sin that you've ever committed. And what he asks of you is that you would come and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, change me, save me. I want to belong to you and I want to live for you. And the Bible says that he'll do that. Tonight, the altar is open. If you know that there's things, Lord, I need this set right. I need this delivered from my life. The answer is always the same. Bring it to the cross. Bring it to the cross. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As the worship team closes, I'd invite you to come. Lay it down. Don't be caught off guard in these days. Father, we just thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you'd write it upon our hearts, that you'd help us, Lord. We pray that you'd change us and awaken us from within. We ask for a fresh baptism and pouring out of your spirit upon us, that we would live completely for you. Help us, Lord, to know what to do in these days. Fix our eyes, O oh Lord. Fix our eyes on you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Let's stand together.